welcome to the builders club uh, we are we are really really glad to have uh, you here all those who don't know kostab kostab is a is a serial entrepreneur for almost almost 2 to 3 decades now uh, started his first company around 1990 he's now found, founded four companies uh, and you know in 2006 uh, even sold commercial interest in his first three companies uh he's been honored as the entrepreneurship educator and mentor award by the ministry of skill development and entrepreneurship government in india he's an acclaimed professor of innovation and design thinking currently he's a he's a visiting faculty in iit bombay iim simor nmms and multiple other colleges so i think the list is very long uh one thing which i think we should also add that he's also an author of the book it's logical Uh, innovating profitable business models uh, and uh, he himself is a design thinking expert so how many hats do you usually wear in a day <laughs> may i ask you that <laughs> i i don't have hair so i need that protection right so <laughs> i need to wear those hats now oh, basically i mean i i do do main uh, what do you say the bread and butter really comes from corporate consulting and training and as a passion uh, these teaching assignments at various colleges that's a passion and uh, startup mentoring has always been close to my heart because uh, i have struggled through all those days in the first uh, 15 years of my life 10 15 years of my life and i kind of i mean wherever i go to teach at these institutes uh naturally i try to kind of uh, support the startup ecosystem there and uh, so that's about it corporate consultant training visiting faculty and a startup kind of evangelist so to say you can interesting interesting so uh kostab you have been you are an entrepreneur since the time the word entrepreneur was not that cool right uh and you have seen the whole ecosystem change front of you would you know i think would love to hear a little bit about your own journey uh, into entrepreneurship why did you start what you start and then you know the successes the high points the low points and you know probably if you can just chart down your overall journey in a, in, in a in a bit would love yeah. to hear about that uh the initially the usual journey btech uh, then mba then i don't know somewhere in my second year of mba all these uh, placement uh, you know the usual people sitting for placement interviews and things like that somewhere that uh, i didn't get into that i kind of uh, took a risk at that time uh, we got into manufacturing we had you know uh, you know what a lathe machine means some of you guys may not have seen mechanical factory but uh, you know some we had a few lathe machines and things there and we used to do, do metal cutting job work for larger organizations like siemens and lnt and voltas and all those guys you know and in the first 6 odd months i kind of realized that uh, these folks are taking us small manufacturers for a big good jolly good ride by stretching the credit periods they would pay us after 60 days 90 days and all of that and that's where i realized that this doing job work for larger companies is not going to be able to you know 
sustainable in the long run or it's not going to be able to you're not going to be able to scale up and that's where we thought that we should kind of manufacture our own product so 6 7 months kind of went in looking at some suitable product to manufacture and stuff like that and we found uh, one very simple product we started off with uh, table mounted hand operated presses you know the presses uh, is press machines uh, we okay. back 1990 and uh, yeah. gradually uh, it kind of you know we we started supplying these or manufacturing and selling these uh, press machines to uh, so, uh, you know these um, uh, switch gear manufacturers and utensil manufacturers etc the basic applications used to be uh, you know uh, marking your logos on sheet metal or punching holes into sheet metal doing some kind of fastening and riveting operations etc etc et so gradually kind of we grew in that space in a couple of years we kind of so to say established in that press manufacturing market but in that in those two years i think uh, this that realization that i got that that was a turning point uh, what i realized at that time was we were selling presses we were doing fine we were selling about maybe uh, 20 odd presses every month and sufficiently you know growing okay pretty okay for a startup sort of say but uh, the realization came that when a customer comes to me to buy a press he isn't really coming to me to buy a press but he is kind of coming to me to improve the efficiency of his production lines in his factory which means what he was coming to me to replace a hammer with a press which could increase the productivity of his assembly lines so that kind of you know hit us and that's where i kind of got thinking that are we really in the business of only presses or are we in the business of enhancing the productivity or enhancing the efficiency of my clients production lines assembly lines and that kind of set us into growing beyond the presses then naturally the next question was what are these customers looking at to enhance efficiencies on their assembly lines the natural logical answer came was that that came to our mind was they are looking at some assembly line automation that is they are looking at automated conveyor belts they are looking at pick and place units you know back in the 90s miniature robotics so to say you pick and place units i mean you yeah, engineer yeah, yeah. what i'm talking about then yeah. indexing tables you know all those kinds of things came naturally came into our mind and we chalked out can we get into these businesses uh, i mean manufacturing those but uh, we also realized that we didn't have the manufacturing capability to manufacture those precision equipments so what we started doing was we started tying up with uh, folks who manufactured these and uh, when a customer would come to us we kind of became a one window clearance for that customer for his entire assembly line automation needs uh, initially we were not manufacturing a lot of these components but later on we got into manufacturing that as well because when customers started demanding some customization uh, some of our vendors would not be able to customize so we had to get into manufacturing and we also realized that when we were doing that we were able to kind of you know control the quality much better so i think in the next 
five, seven years or so by the late 90s, 97, 98 or so, we kind of were able to come out of that, you know, just a press manufacturer image to a one window shop for assembly line automation for a customer. So customer did not have to go to different places to satisfy or to you know, to get his assembly lines automated. They would come to us and we gradually became an integrator. Manufacturing a bit, something outsourcing, but finally all end-to-end -end solution creation uh, is what we started getting into. And fortunately that business grew. Uh, we had good largest customers also. Uh, and, you know, so, so that, that's what uh, that business grew. And it was fun designing new things, uh, making special purpose machines and things, the custom built machines also we got into. That was a good profit making uh, exercise for us. And by 2002 or so, we had a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of uh, chances to uh, get into joint ventures with, uh, with foreign companies. One was a German company called Schmidt Fine Technique. Another one was an American company called Orbit Form. And, uh, but uh, the, my aim was to kind of get some joint ventures going. But at that time, what happened was uh, uh, these, uh, these Americans and the Germans wanted a large stake, an unreasonable stake in the company. And somehow those discussions kind of fell through, did not happen. Uh, and then uh, later on, uh, you know, somewhere around 2003, 2004, when the company kind of came to a certain scale, I found myself becoming more of an administrator rather than a creator. You know, the fun yeah. out of that activity was kind of going out uh, because the previous 10, 12 years, uh, I was completely engaged into the technical side of development creating those machines, designing those machines, setting up the manufacturing lines, et cetera, et cetera. And later on, as the company grew, I found myself becoming more of an administrator. And that kind of started gnawing me somewhere inside. And you know, that's where I kind of started really honestly speaking. I shouldn't be speaking on this platform of entrepreneurs, but I started kind of getting a little bored of what I'm doing. What the hell am I doing? You know, I'm going there to my factory to manage to, to kind of administer stuff rather than create stuff. Uh, so that's a dilemma which all of you will face and you will have to, as an entrepreneur, you'll have to live with it. You have to become an administrator at some point in life. Uh, you have to become a good manager at some point in time. I personally found that that, that was not, not my aptitude. And that's where I started looking for, for ways of getting out of those businesses. And then, you know, after a search for about two, three years, we got an investor and uh, I took that chance to cash out in 2005. But along the way, okay. these 15 years, uh, were a lot of ups and downs. Uh, somewhere in 95, 96, uh, we got, uh, you know, we, we were doing uh, manufacturing certain machines, these presses which if you are aware of these switch manufacturers, anchor switch manufacturers, biggest, largest switch manufacturers in India back then, they were one of our major customers. Yeah, so, so they were one of our major customers and they were tying up with uh, Devu, the uh, Korean company uh, for you know, their consumer electronics division. 
for it was anchor devu limited and it was that was their proposal and it was actually happening and they wanted to upgrade the entire uh, so to say you know their production lines mm-hmm. and things like that and uh, and these anchor fellows liked it and then they said because they were tying up with the koreans they wanted to upgrade their qualities and they wanted to upgrade upgrade their quality inspection and stuff like that and this machine was very well liked by these anchor fellows and uh, they kind of said verbally they gave me a kind of an order for about 60 such machines because they had 60 lines at the end of which they wanted to put these testing machines now at that time that was kind of big business for us you know to the tune of probably about 3 and 1/2 crores or so way back in 95 96 was really really big now with that kind of a carrot in front of us i set up a separate factory for doing all of this and uh, we set it up everything was kind of going on stream and finally what happened was the memorandum or that agreement between anchor and devu just did not happen fell apart that oh, fell apart and we were stuck with this investment in this factory it, it took probably 3 okay. hours to get over th- i mean 3 years to get out of it uh, and another thing i would say the mistake that i made at that time also was that uh, uh, well forget about that you know going on a verbal agreement or something like that 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 i shouldn't have done anyway but even after that yeah. we had created this sophisticated testing machine which was meant for an anchor devu collaboration and there were then we thought that this anchor devu collaboration fell through so we lost that customer that entire product line so i thought we will there are many other switch manufacturers in the country i will kind of sell that testing equipment to these folks also yeah, yeah. Uh, well but what happened was Uh, these guys were not interested in that sophistication they were they were really not interested in that sophistication but we were trying to push that through into their mouths since we had already developed quite a bit they've already made the product yeah 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 all, all those were not ready but we had the entire design and we had you know the back end ready and stuff like that and we were trying to force these other manufacturers to buy it but it was kind of too expensive for those people for anchor devu it was fine because then that it was becoming an international company so that pricing was good for them that sophistication was good for them but the local manufacturers in india it was not good so and uh, you know we were beaten by some very i would say ordinary competition i shouldn't be using yeah. ordinary competition because they beat us uh, with the sold yeah. stuff very locally manufactured at probably one third or half the price and we were just uh, you know left high and dry so two lessons uh, from this my when i talked about my beginning that when i was selling presses i and when customers were coming to me i realized that the customer is not coming to me just to buy a press but to enhance the productivity of his assembly line that was a positive point but here when i talk about trying to sell what i had already made down the throat of other customers there i was trying to sell what i am making whereas in the first instance i tried to make what might sell you get the difference between the two yeah, and yeah. that where the first attempt was a success while as the second attempt in this trying to sell what you already had yeah. uh, was i mean it doesn't it just doesn't run in the market you know so yeah. many yeah. times 
we make that mistake of making some product uh, uh, and then trying to sell it trying biggest, to fit it into a market yeah so, so the biggest lesson i would say is uh, rather than trying to sell what you make try to make what might sell i think i think that's something which as an entrepreneur we should all always remember uh, and then uh, finally you know in 2005 or so uh, the, that investor came in and uh, i cashed out of those three companies and then kind of took a year off uh, explored various places which uh, which looked at yoga as a science not yoga as a as a kind of any without any religious content in it so and found, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so explored those places three places i found in india where yoga is approached at a very scientific level one is in bangalore called swami vivekananda uh, yoga anusandhana sthan another one was in bihar bihar school of yoga and third is you know near mumbai uh, in a place called lonavala uh, the place is called kaivalya these three places i found interesting exploring yoga at a scientific level and then after that one year got into consulting research and teaching teaching has been a passion i continue doing that <laughs> so that's been my journey so far wow it's a it's an amazing journey sir because i believe especially if you have a experience in either manufacturing design thinking comes naturally to you uh, would love to know how yeah. how do you how do you define design thinking and where exactly and what are the basics the basic elements the primitive design blocks as they call it is basically a highly user centric approach to problem solving and it is very exploratory and iterative user centric because you keep the user at the center at all times trying to understand what they need and uh, exploratory because you're constantly exploring what the user needs and iterative because you're constantly trying to fit your product or offering according to what the user is giving the what feedback the user feedback, is giving what feedback the user is giving right so and i would say that when we were into that assembly line automation way back in the early 90s i mean whenever we used to kind of get an assignment for automating an assembly line uh, i would personally spend probably 5 to 6 days on that assembly line understanding how it is being done at that time how are the manual operations being done and after having understood how the manual operations are being done we were uh, analyzing what is the effort required in x operation and y operation and how can we automate that operation at that time i hadn't heard the word called design thinking but i think that was mm. in practice because we used to spend multiple shifts you know day and night understanding how that assembly is assembly process is happening at our, at our client's end and then coming back to the drawing board and then devising how we should automate the whole process so that i think those were the seeds of uh, so to say design thinking because design thinking lays uh, lays a lot of emphasis on understanding the user in his or her context and then hmm. when i kind of came across this term called design thinking after i came out of my businesses in 2005 and kind of 
touch base with academics here and there. That's when everybody was talking about design thinking, etc. Uh, not much in India way back in 2005-2006. In India, kind of it has become kind of popularized, say post-2011 or so, thanks to, you know, uh, Sikka of Infosys. When, uh, what is his yeah. first name? I don't remember his first name. He was the chief ex. He was brought in as the CEO of uh, Infosys. He made that uh, kind of uh, word popular, jargon popular in India. But uh, that uh, what appeals to me about design thinking is that very high. It lays a lot of emphasis on understanding the user, and that's where the genesis of all kinds of innovation really happens. And automatically, you know, in our startup parlance, it's product market fit which is the most significant yeah. thing that an entrepreneur has to achieve. Design thinking yeah. kind of helps you get to that. So that's what I would uh, say. Interesting. So um, one thing which, uh, you know, people, uh, the design thinking, the term itself is kind of an oft uh, mistreated word or overused in, in some contexts. Sure. But uh, uh, if you talk about design thinking, people naturally gravitate towards products as in, uh, gra naturally gravitate towards uh, apps and things mm -hmm. they get see on the on the on the smartphone. Mm -hmm. I don't think design thinking is only restricted to that. I think design thinking is, uh, you know, is is applicable to any and every aspect of business and as well as any and every kind of product which is available and not just you know, the the frameworks which are used usually for uh, for for a mobile phone app or a website so to speak yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, any so, any any examples yeah. or anything that you think can help elaborate on well see uh, uh, two parts to your question one is uh, is design thinking only about this interface design no not at all design thinking is a fundamental approach to problem solving which as i mentioned keeps the user at the center at all times and this approach can be used to solve your manufacturing problems, your finance-related problems, your marketing-related problems, your even your personal issues with your boyfriends and girlfriends too. Yeah. I mean, because you're basically getting to the crux of the matter. So, so that's so design thinking is a universal approach to problem solving. Uh, it has these elements of empathy and then uh, def problem definition and then ideation and then prototyping and testing that's the jargon bit out of the whole thing what appeals to me personally as uh, the, about design thinking is the fact that it lays a lot of emphasis emphasis on empathy and user understanding and uh, uh, what happens because of that is uh, as an entrepreneur you must always adopt the approach of user first and technology later because you have to understand the user first and then bring in the appropriate technology to solve that problem. Many times I see a lot of startups around, they're good with certain technology and they want to kind of create a solution around that technology itself. But they somewhere forget that finally they're going to, you know, they have to, uh, uh, they have to kind of cater to a user. So first, user first, technology later. That's a, that's a must that all this approach is, is a must that we must have. Then also this high level of emphasis on empathy, generating empathy with the user in design thinking 
helps us establish what I call as a last mile user connect because we really need to understand that user in his or her context and because it is very difficult to make users change their habits you know we need to create products and services which kind of dovetail into their habits now a lot of people counter me by saying, oh, Facebook and Google change, changed our habits. But these companies happen once in a lifetime. They don't happen regularly, right? So we need to really understand those user habits and try to dovetail our products into those. That's when you kind of get people hooked on to your products. Oh, but I, I, I also believe that, uh, you know, Facebook and Google, they didn't really uh, change our consumer habits. The way I look at it, they probably understood our behaviors on a more deeper level and then yes. accentuated certain aspects of our habits using their, using their product, which, you know, yeah. our natural behavior kind of gravitated towards them. It's yeah. not that it's not that they kind of changed it it's just that they basically were able to probably pick on certain habits of ours which we probably on a generic level might not have been able to sorry you were saying something no no yeah true true actually true and they gave they gave us another platform to explore that because i sincerely what i believe is when you ask a question in general to people what business was google in say in the first decade of its operations First 10 yeah. years, the 1998 to 2008. Now people say it was a search engine. People say it was a, AdSense was their business, X, Y, Z. What, but what I fundamentally feel is, uh, you know, taking off from what you're saying, Sohel, is why did we go to Google at that time? Yeah. Why did we Absolutely. go to Google at that time? Uh, because we wanted information about some things. Now, Again, if you ask another question, why do you want information? And if you keep asking this why, fundamentally, then you reach to a level that the human race is inherently a very curious race, is, is a very curious people, right? We want to know more. We want to know more. So I would say Google, at least in the first decade of its operation, I would define Google's business as satisfying human curiosity. Would you agree? I agree. I absolutely agree. And that's a wonderful way of putting it. Because if you look at all the products that these people build, yeah. the initial, this thing was, I would, we want to bring all the books together on, 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 on one platform. We want to, we want to navigate, you know, put all the roads which are there on the world on one map. So yeah. They were actually solving those problems, which they knew that if we were the first ones actually, uh, you know, solve this and we complete the entire ecosystem, then nobody else can beat us. If we, if we kind of understand our businesses at that core fundamental value that we are offering, as we just now said, that Google was in the business of satisfying human curiosity. The moment you start understanding your business at that level, a lot of other options emerge from that understanding. You know, like, for example, let us continue on this Google's discussion. They must have understood this, that we are in the business of satisfying human curiosity. Then... When we want to expand, the natural question, next question is, what the hell are human beings curious about? I mean, isn't that a logical question? If I am in the business satisfying human curiosity, to grow, I need to know what else are people, what are human beings curious about? And the answers come logically to Google because on the Google platform, every click is noted down, right? Which means what we are searching, Google knows at the back end which means 
Google knows what people are curious about at exactly the time in absolute real time because they capture the clicks, right? What people are searching is kind of a curiosity meter of the world, so to say. What the hell people are searching, Google knows at the back end. And when Google gets this answer, I mean, the moment Google realized that people are looking for some long-lost friends on something called Orkut, Google didn't bother to create another Orkut. It just go, went and bought out Orkut. When Google kind of realized that people are uploading videos on something called YouTube, they didn't try to make another video uploading platform. They just went and brought YouTube under their umbrella. The moment Google kind of figured out that people are exchanging photographs on something called Picasa Web Albums, they grabbed Picasa Web Albums and brought it under their uh, kind of umbrella. The moment people, the moment Google figured out that people are looking for directions from place A to place B, they went and picked up this company called Keyhole, which now is called famously as Google Maps. So point being, they were, they kept on answering the questions, what people are curious about. And that's how they kind of grew their business beyond any any magnitude of imagination, right? But where did it all start? Somewhere that understanding that we are satisfying human curiosity. And then innovation also becomes logical, no? Because the next question is logical. What else are human beings curious about? Constantly keep on asking, what else, what else, what else? And uh, Google, by virtue of its platform, captures what people are curious about in absolute real time. So probably Sergey Bin, uh, Brin and Larry Page uh, used to sit probably with, with multiple screens on their, probably in their cabins, where some bar graphs are going up and down, uh, like the curiosity meter of the world. Are people curious about this, 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 this is going up, this is going up? You know, that kind of stuff. Possibly, I don't know. <laughs> I can just imagine. But uh, you get my point that if we can kind of understand the fundamental core of why people are coming to you, then natural expansion of that business scaling up happens. Oh, so yeah. basically, the way I look at it, I think uh, they kind of uh, not fall into the whole policy of the golden mouse trap. So because Google was never the fastest search engine of its time. I remember no. uh, when, yeah. you know, when Google was actually in the early, late 90s, you know, or early 2000, 2000, 2001, were other search engines also which were being developed which were much faster there were some chinese ones and japanese ones which, whose algorithms actually used to give much more search, search results but google actually uh, went not towards the uh, making a more faster search engine but a more useful search engine i think the whole design aspect of their overall homepage itself is a story of its own Exactly, and that's where I want to they take this segue into uh, into UI and UX, actually, to get a better understanding from you because we had a discussion last week around UI versus UX and what we could within the community, whatever we dis we discussed, we figured that it's the lines become blurry, certain certain products. There is definitely, yeah. you know, first you will have to understand the user experience and then you basically build the UI on top of it to make it more suited and everything. How do you think, you know, what do you think, you know, number one, your feedback and your thoughts on the overall Google product design and design thinking in Google in general? And number two, the UI UX, you know, debate and where exactly do you stand there? Well, Google understood its user very well. 
very high empathy quotient for the user and uh, the insights and because it was a search platform they were able to capture insights in actual real time very few companies have the luxury to capture insights in real time thousands uh, or you know that kind of that late 90s or early 2000s yeah. in the market then there was a thing called ask jeeves yes. i think that was the first search engine ask jeeves was the first search engine um, somewhere in 95 or something like that then came yahoo and then came bing and then google and bing i think was side page and yahoo's home page yahoo's home page was used to be so crowded so busy you know there are some ticker ads going on around there are some banner ads being flashed and then xyz and then capacity so i had to kind of know that i had to click on this section and this section and this section painful thing right whereas google just type in rc coupler apps rc couplers where will i get it you type it in the google does the search at the back end and throws up those things so so that's where that's user experience right minimize the number of clicks rather than expecting the customer to know what section or what kind of category he or she is looking at google took that pain away from that pain away from the customer and naturally because of these kinds of things it, it just you know people just went gravitated towards google so distractibility is a major factor which went against yahoo that yahoo's interface was very distractible like distractibility what i mean is let's simply understand when i pick up a phone my phone say to call you so here okay uh, yeah. and uh, when i am uh, when i when the display comes on i see some five six messages on my whatsapp four five emails another two three texts and i get into looking at that and after a couple of minutes i forget the fact that i actually picked up the phone to call you so the interface is distractible right and it takes me away from my task correct so 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 it's a distractible interface now if you guys remember uh, nokia i don't know if you used uh, nokia phones in the 90s uh, those you know keypad wala phones Up keypad the 90s yeah yeah, yeah. yeah now let's 1100 yeah uh, even prior to 1100 1100 was a much much better uh, phone but you know i am talking about 5510 and you know those motorola phones etc which i i uh, remember yes the bigger 90s. ones yeah the big ones 96 97 now if i had to send an sms text message i had to press star and one if i had to Uh, play a game on that uh, on that you know if you remember that snake game and things like that yeah 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 then i had to press star and 2 to enter that gaming option if i had oh. to do some other uh, application i had to if i had to go into my contact list i had to press star and 3 or 5 user experience plays a very important role in the whole thing like having to remember star and 1 and star and 3 and star and 5 is a painful thing for a customer right so how do you take that pain away and then bring in the technology that's that's important that's the crux of all of ux and ui i have a kind of 75 attribute 73 i would say 73 attribute framework which could be useful in creating better user experiences and hence a better ui also and wow and this framework not necessarily only for ux and ui but for overall uh, product design or whatever
Cool. I think we have had an enthralling 45-minute discussion till now. Uh, I will open up the floor uh, for questions now. So anybody who has any questions, uh, please unmute yourself and uh, uh, you know you can ask the question directly to uh, to Gostav. Hello. Yeah. Am I audible? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, hi, Gostav. Uh, I'm glad to tell you that uh, I am right now a student at JBIMS. Uh, so oh. I was really excited about about this uh, water cooler chat uh, specifically. Yeah, I am an alumnus of JBIMS. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. So uh, the the question that I want to ask is uh, in in MBA uh, the current uh, education kind of the current syllabus that we have there is not much emphasis on. Uh, product uh, management, product development as such, uh, because we follow the Mumbai University, uh, specifically uh, the Mumbai University syllabus. So, uh, and I will be entering the management space after I finish. I am right now in the second year, so I will be done by I think May around primers as such, wherein I can uh, figure out, uh, you know, kind of understand the, you know, nuances of product management as such before I start off. Uh, my work that might help me at my work, something of that sort. When suggested, if you were to get into product management, of course, product creation is something so that's where design thinking helps. Uh, you should be good at requirement gathering, you should be good at creating a brief that has to be given to the engineers at the back end to create the product. So you have to be very good with user research, uh, qualitative user research, uh, try to figure out, uh, try to read up on uh, interesting uh, user research techniques, especially the, uh, not the quantitative ones, I am talking the qualitative user research types, uh, because that will help you understand users very well. And uh, as a product manager, you will have to be like, you know, it's like a product manager basically is like a jack of all, maybe a master of one or a master of none, but what you have to be a jack of all kind of a person, understanding uh, logistics, understanding a little bit of manufacturing production. If you are into the IT space, you need to be understanding solution architecture. Uh, you should be understanding UI UX also. Uh, you should be understanding how to capture requirements. That's where the user research comes in. Uh, you should be good at uh, getting things done from people. You should be, that means you should be good at managing people. Uh, that will help a lot if you are trying to get into product management. OKRs actually help anywhere, but in product management, yes, because you will be possibly handling the people of you will be handling people with diverse backgrounds, with diverse skills. So, keeping them excited, uh, giving them actual milestones to work on, this OKR philosophy helps a lot. Objectives and key result areas kind of a thing. So these, these multiple things you simply good at at the beginning of your career and you will automatically keep getting better. That answers your question. Yeah, yeah, sure. I've noted it all. Thank you, thanks. So, as we were talking about design thinking, so uh, basically the thing what uh, I am doing right now is like customers are like showing some of them are showing interest and some of them are not 
like not really interested but the thing what i have heard or like what i have uh, researched about is like uh what i fear about is like how can i maintain the customer behavior constant till i make a prototype of my product because like obviously the prototype manufacturing or uh, prototype development will take it around four to five months and if, if a customer behavior changes by then so how do you how do you tackle this kind of things in startups see customer behavior is bound to change right yeah it may or may be constant so you have to be agile in your development uh, you can't expect that you will create a product and then if the customers trends change they will still use your product it will not happen like that right correct i mean that's not going to help you create a sustainable business around it yeah. so keeping the customer at the center at all times is extremely important i mean the the approach that i have used in in my days of startups etc is if you can have a small group of customers who are willing to experiment with you while you are designing the product or while you are creating the offering uh with total transparency with them that i am creating this anew they also know that you are creating it fresh so they are also open to having bugs and glitches in that product or offering that you are trying to create that understanding has to be very clear between that set of customers it could be a small set of maybe 5 or 10 customers or 50 to 100 customers depending on what kind of product you are building but those initial customers with whom uh, you are experimenting with forms a very important cohort so to say and at that time maybe there some features free because you are also developing it you are also not sure what's happening etc but maintaining a strong communication between that set of customers and you is very important to get that proper product market fit and those kinds of people also know that you are genuinely interested in solving their problems and when their problems get solved they kind of are big broadcasters for you you know word of mouth publicity kind of people that testimonials etc they are very very open in giving testimonials because they have seen your journey and then they have seen your struggle create value for them so if you can have this kind of small little customer base who are those early adopters for you taking them into confidence etc etc as i mentioned uh, that's a, a good way to kind of create a robust offering and then scaling up rather than you know just making an offering and then trying to make us trying to sell it that's that's not the way it will get a good product market fit okay okay thank you I have noted uh, it. Look for it. Okay. So, uh, hello, Kasim. I'm Elias. So, I Hi. wanted to ask you about the whole UI versus UX thing. I couldn't really uh, get a word because uh, I think we all digressed on different topics. So, I just wanted to know your opinion on where you stand on the UI versus UI versus UX debate since we had a whole discussion on it on Wednesday, and I'd really love to hear an expert's opinion on it. See. the experience has to be understood first and then the interface has to be designed right so for me it's very clear the experience comes first the user journeys have to be understood properly 
and then the interfaces have to be created. So, what is the debate about? I don't know about this Wednesday discussion. <laughs> no, so, everyone was basically giving their opinion and saying what is more important between UI and that. Some said that some, some people were still trying to understand what lies in UI, what lies in UX, and then they were giving their opinion what they believe is more important for a product or something like that. Let me give you an example. Okay, let me give you an example. Sure. Uh, this is about uh, three years back, two years back, uh, doing something with Citibank. Okay. Now, uh, their home loan vertical, home loan vertical, right? So, on their website, they had these three, four pages where one could log in and, you know, look at the EMI calculator and find out how much would be the EMI, etc. If I take this loan, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff on the, on the, uh, what do you say? on their web website, right? A good interface, easy to understand interface, great. Uh, but if I were to ask you a question, when you look for a house, what is your experience? What is the user journey that that person goes through? When I want to look for a house, I broadly have some locality in mind, all right? Okay, now, just just uh, respond to me whether you, whether you agree with me or not. Then, when I narrow down on a few, two, three localities, then I want to look for construction happening in that localities. Then, what's my next question which will come to my mind? I will want to find some real estate brokers who are active in that locality. True or false? Then, I would want to know which are good, which are the good schools in that locality for my kids to attend. Second, third group. Then my wife would want to know what are the uh, malls around, what are the shopping markets around, etc. That she would like to know. True or false? Right. Then once all that kind of falls in place, these three, four steps, then I am going to look for a loan, a home loan. Yes or no? Yep. Yep. Now if a customer has to go onto the Citibank site, and straight away you kind of intimidated at that person with some EMI calculator, they ask you your income and this and that. That's intimidating. But if you were to understand the user journey of a person looking for a house, you would possibly think that you should ideally take them through, through these kinds of steps which I talked about. Locality, active brokers, good schools in the locality, uh, some supermarkets in the locality blah 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 all those kinds of things if you are able to provide on your website on CCTV's website then you are simplifying the experience of the user in buying his or her house right you know this is how the journey should happen yes or no yes yes so basically the people should empathize with the user and see where they are what's their journey to come to their particular website or product and that's what you were talking about. Yeah, that's what the experience that you want to give to the user because the user wants that. And then from that the UI comes in, right? What should appear where and all that, that's the interface. Okay. So point B, now the bank looks at its its home loan division only as a way to meet its way to dole out loans. But they fundamentally forget the fact that if I can simplify the experience of a person looking for a home, 
I will naturally get more eyeballs on my site. Mm. Yeah. And and another thing, maybe I can identify these give some more revenue streams also for the bank because for getting listed, good brokers will pay the bank to get listed on their site. Hello. Yes. Yeah. Good supermarkets will will pay this good bank to get listed on their website to be discoverable on their website. Yeah. Through trust. Maybe schools also something kind of some arrangement can be there which adds to the revenue of the uh, of of this overall division of the bank. Yeah, maybe. Get my point. So, so yeah. when you understand the experience of that user. A lot of opportunity also could come up, you know. Mm, I understand. Yes, and then the interface. In my mind, I'm pretty clear about this. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So one one small extrapolation from here. So I think uh, idea is a focus group discussions so are rather validating. Uh, uh, the market before you start building is the basis of lean entrepreneurship as well. Yeah. Um, one of the things which I have this thing is quantitative versus qualitative research. When you when you when you go out there in the market, should you float a survey or should you speak to people? And if you say speak to people, how many is enough? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, very often I get asked. I get this. Ask this question. Uh, uh, my belief is very straightforward. Both are important, but first, do a qualitative research to understand what people are looking at, what are the parameters on which people are making decisions, and once you have kind of uh, got the hang of what parameters people are looking at, then do a quantitative aspect to understand how many people want X parameter and how many people want Y parameter and how many people want Z parameter. That's where the quantitative bit comes in. Most of the times if you jump into the questionnaire or you know some already set parameters and then validate whether you want it or not from the user. But somewhere you might have missed one or two parameters which the user actually would have told you had you discussed with enough users in the beginning. You get the point? So, qualitative research first, then to get the numbers or the preferences of those parameters, which is priority one, which is priority two, which is priority three, that's where the quantitative techniques kick in. Yeah, yeah, that's what the question was. The second part, how many? Now, that really is contextual. I mean, you know, uh, I can't put a number that you should do at least 30 interviews and then get it qualitative or quantitative research or you need to do 100 or you know, it really depends, it is quite contextual I would say. But yeah, I agree. When, you, when, you, when you are into that space, after having spoken to enough people, you start getting a gut feel that yeah, you know, when you start, when you keep having these discussions. Uh, after a point, you start getting the same parameters from different people. So you know, you get a gut feel that yes, now I have done enough of qualitative. Now I need to find the numbers when I want to featureize my product. Now I want to I want to find out what are the priorities of these parameters that are desirable from me for people. 
that's when you start quantifying. You want quantifiable numbers, right? That's when you use your yeah. <laughs> Honestly, also, I don't really have too much faith in these uh, you know questionnaires or Google survey forms which are floated around. How many folks honestly sit down and answer your questions? Tell me. I agree. I, just, I agree. I agree. People are in a hurry. People just kick off. So that face-to-face -face contact gives you a lot of body language cues, the voice tone cues, etc., etc. You know, that's important. That, that kind of makes you understand the disposition of that user towards what you're speaking. And those that those kind of unsaid and unseen kind of cues are the ones that really lead to innovation. I would kind of cite something from my experience in the last two, three years. Uh, there was this, uh, this is about 2017, second half of 2017. You know, telecalling BPO came to me with an assignment. Telecalling BPO means, you know, what I'm talking about. You know, these uh, people yeah, yeah, yeah. keep on calling us. Home loan, this loan, credit cards, you know, that kind of characters. Yeah. And they keep on pestering us, multiple calls they make, right? And these folks, this BPO came saying that we've been on the digital transformation journey from about 2007-2008, on that journey for about 10 years. We have tremendously improved efficiencies of various processes in the organization. But still, we would like to, you know, go much higher. Uh, so, can you help us? So, the first question that I asked was, uh, which is the most inefficient process in your organization today? So, Pat came the reply saying that, you know, the calling process. Because they keep on calling us and, you know, even if you say no, if you bang the two days, there is but one series bill. Such a waste of time, effort and money from that uh, from their side. So we need to really create something to, to enhance the efficiency of that process. Now, so we, I, the first thing that I kind of proposed to them was let us understand, let us have a small little workshop to kind of understand what is going wrong, what is happening and also kind of push some kind of creative bit into the thinking of that entire team. So initially, uh, they said that we were only with senior management folks, to which I said, uh, senior management is not in touch with the end customer. So I would rather do this course, uh, do, do, do this uh, workshop for the entire team. At least representative people from across the hierarchy should be there. They agreed. And they also included two e-callers who actually pick up the phone and speak to a prospect. Also, they got them also in this workshop. So the, we formed, there was a 21 uh, member team formed and we began this entire discussion. And after the first two hours of the discussion in the first coffee break, I was sitting with these two telecallers who had not opened their mouth at all during the conversation. Uh, because they were overawed by their seniors in the team and things like that. And very casually one of them said that all this discussion for two hours is fine. Everybody is talking about Six Sigma and everybody is talking about various statistical techniques used to enhance, to enhance efficiency and things like that. But when I pick up my receiver and speak to a prospect, in the first five to six sentences that I hear from the prospect, I can get a gut feel whether this prospect will get converted or not. 
So what is this? Now this is a very subjective parameter, right? It is judgment. Get the point? It is nowhere captured in their entire process. Uh, which kind of appealed to me, the subjective parameter appealed to me a lot. And when we restarted this workshop after the coffee break, I made this guy talk. What, whatever he told me, I made him speak in that forum. Instantly, everybody in the room just jumped at that forum, saying that, citing numbers again. We have 3,500 telecallers making 40 to 60 calls per 8-hour shift. 3,500 folks making on an average 50 calls per shift is a number, is a humongous number of 175,000 calls being made in a data shift. And they said, if we were to take into account the subjective judgment of each of these 175,000 calls, we just cannot operate at scale. Genuine objection, right? But this was a very appealing statement that that telecaller had made subjective judgment. So we kept on probing and within about 8 to 10 minutes of this discussion happening, one of the techies in the group of 21 mentioned that, what are you talking about? You're talking about voice tone, right? Voice tone is basically a sound wave and a sound wave has amplitude, has wavelength and has frequency. And these three parameters are perfectly measurable. I, we need a good enough data set to be able to figure that out. So the next question was, you know, uh, what came to my mind was, you know, when before the telecallers get connected to us, there is a pre-recorded message say, which says that this call may be recorded for training purposes, which means that some of the calls at least get recorded. My question was, how many call logs do you have recorded in the previous years of your operations? that senior VP instantly sent somebody out of that room to find out and he came back in a minute or two saying that we have 4.5 million call logs recorded over the previous 12 years of our operations. 4.5 million call logs is a large data set. Next question was, do you have the outcomes of these call logs recorded? They said yes. That means this particular prospect took 20 calls to get converted. This one got this one took 10, to, uh, 10 calls to get converted. This one didn't get converted at all. So they had these two data sets. Then it was a simple question of, you know, correlating, creating an algorithm to correlate the two. Now, creating an algorithm was tough because it was voice recognition and voice tone recognition. recognition. Right. So we looked yeah. around and, you know, through my circles of these technology business incubators, startup incubators, etc. We found one startup doing some cool stuff in speech recognition. These folks got together and over the next six and a half months or so, this startup created a voice recognition engine, which when it, all those 45 million call, I mean 4.5 million call logs were fed into it and were mapped with the outcome, what emerged was these 4.5 lakh 4.5 million call logs fell into four categories. Voice tone pattern A corresponded to an outright conversion from the prospect. Voice tone pattern B corresponded to a maybe yes from the prospect. Voice tone pattern C wow. corresponded maybe yes, maybe no. Pattern D maybe no and pattern E outright no. Now this engine was deployed for all calls henceforth. This was deployed somewhere in 2018, second half. 
and just before this pandemic situation etc began uh, january 2020 or beginning of feb 2020 i just touched base with this telecom uh, people just to ask them what has happened about that speech recognition deployment that you had done and i was surprised they said that this whole engine which is a self learning engine this algorithm is a self learning algorithm it get better with time they had reached a stage where when a telecaller calls and the prospect speaks within the first 12 words of the prospect speaking the backend engine captures the voice tone and categorizes the prospect's voice tone into these five categories either a b c d or e and whichever category that prospect's voice tone falls in is flashed in front of the telecaller screen and the telecaller is prompted to ask these these questions and carry on conversation in specific fashion oh wow you know, now tell me what happens with this this just simplifies the whole process conversion process time money effort reduced drastically and targeted marketing happens now the next question will come to your mind is what happens to what happens to voice tone patterns d and e were unlikely to get converted they are just put out of the system because they are not going to get converted by voice calls that category of customers or prospects is given to some other sales channel to reach to that prospect through other sales channels different channel yeah oh, so you know so my point is that now this would not have come through any quantitative techniques this is a qualitative parameter and it was an unseen parameter that was explored so what my point is that you know two two points from here one is that last mile user connect that means the pro, the telecaller is in contact with that customer ideas did not come from the vps and senior vps in that organization this got picked up inside got picked up only by that last mile fellow who was the lowest in hierarchy who was in contact with the customer and that's what according to me is the crux of design thinking you know empathy with the user last mile user connect and also uh, not giving up on on something you know the the doubts that were raised oh this is impossible to do and this will not be help us operate at scale etc 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 all there were valid doubts but uh, if there is a will there is a way so according to me innovation is about understanding the user identifying the unseen and the unsaid and then acting on it creatively i think these three things are the steps towards some breakthroughs and innovations to happen wow that's that's quite a story pastor it's quite a story and it's a amazing amazing case study man i think uh, you know with that beautiful story i think we can end this uh, this overall uh, this uh, water cooler conversation Uh, thanks a lot costa for stopping by i would love to get some closing comments from you about your overall experience and you know if you want to spread you know give some closing comments to the community well, i i think i i i said that innovation is about understanding the user identifying the unseen unsaid parameters and acting on it creatively so it's as simple as that but uh it's not easy to be done it's simple but not easy to be done and uh, so i i sincerely believe business is simple but not easy 